0: We went from no growth at all to doubled our MRR. And we just started to take off like a rocket ship. A lot
1: of people think that if they want to make millions, they need to fundraise. When you've bootstrapped a
0: company, you have to be a really smart problem solver. Then as you start to scale up, you need to
1: find people who are actually better than you. Hey, awesome people. Welcome to Bootstrap Stories, the only podcast where founders of bootstrap companies share in all transparency the ups and downs of their journey. Starting a business comes hand in hand with loneliness, the pressure of not being successful, and overall lots of challenges. After meeting with hundreds of entrepreneurs in the past years, I figured out that we all have struggles and make lots of mistakes when building a business. But the truth is that most people are afraid to share this publicly. That's what motivated me to start this podcast. To show that we're all on the same journey, facing the same struggles. And to give energy to all entrepreneurs worldwide to continue their adventure even if sometimes it can be really challenging and we often feel like giving up, in the end, it's all worth it. My guest for this episode is Kyle Racki, co-founder and CEO of Proposify. Hey, Kyle, and welcome to Bootstrap Stories. Hello, Guillaume. Thanks for having me. I'm super happy to have you here. Like, I know we're going to talk about a lot of interesting topics. And before we get started, I also want to give a general idea of uh, what we'll talk about in this episode. So first, uh, we'll find out about uh, the strategy that helped you to build your multi-million-dollar business, being bootstrapped first and then switching to raising money. Uh, We'll also have a chat about, you know, like this switch, uh, how exactly did it go? What type of deals have you done? Why did you decide to fundraise? And uh, finally, I also want to know like the, the ups and downs because, you know, whenever we're building a business, we all have these ups and also these downs, so it's always important to share between uh, between founders. Sounds cool? Sounds good, let's dig in. Awesome, so can you let us know a bit more about like uh, Proposify, like how it started, what type of uh, market are you addressing?
0: Yeah, I mean the way it started was I got my, um, career beginnings in design. That's what I went to school to study back in around the early 2000s and kind of cut my teeth working in agencies as a designer. And it was during that time where they had me laying out proposals, you know, any of sort of the larger ones that uh, that the agency was going after they would have me lay it out, and make it look really nice. And I noticed that there was a lot of inefficiencies in the process between, you know, account managers emailing Word documents and then having to change the text and layout and Having to go find old case studies from CDs. That's before we had Dropbox, we would used to store all of our project work on, on uh on discs. And so, you know, Basecamp, I think, was pretty new at the time. People were starting to use it for project management. And I just had an idea of wouldn't it be cool if there was a proposal uh system that was like Basecamp up for proposal writing? And it was just the seed of an idea that I never really thought would take me to where I am today because it was just that an idea, like, um. A lot of people at the time were having like, hey, there should be an app for that. But over the course of, of working in agencies, and eventually I went out on my own and became a freelance web designer developer, partnered with, uh, with a colleague, and we started our own agency together. We just kept going back to the idea of like, we should have a SaaS product, like that's a better business model. We didn't like the agency model. And so we tried a whole bunch of different ideas. And um, I still had that proposal idea lingering in the back of my mind. So when I started to talk to other people about it and said, "Hey, we're looking at building a product to help with proposals." People almost universally would say to me like, "That's a huge problem. I hate writing proposals. It's super it's the worst part of my day, but we have to do it to win new business." And that really kind of gave me the the green go ahead of like this is a problem worth solving. We need to do it. So um so that's kind of how it started and uh Essentially, what it is is it's it's a SaaS product that helps sales teams get more control over their proposal writing, streamline it, make it more efficient, um, but also get more visibility into their deal. So instead of just sending like a a PDF in an email, you get to send it to your client in a. Digital interactive format where you can actually track where people looked and where they went, so you can improve your your close rate over
1: time. It's it's actually like a, a cool product. Like when I when I had my agency back in the days, I remember uh, using it, and uh, I was kind of like a picky on the design type of aspect, and uh, I, I remember enjoying using it. Um, so going back to the to the early days, how exactly did you get like uh, your first customers? And maybe can you give us uh, a bit of metric of you know like when exactly did you start it, where are you at right now in term of revenue and team size, and then go back to like how it started with uh, early days and customers. So it was a very long process to get off the ground um,
0: because it, we were talking about it and thinking about it and I was kind of mocking up what it could look like as early as maybe 2011 um, while we were still running the agency. But we were kind of faced with the same problem that a lot of agencies have, which is a lot of them want to build their own products, but to take your dev resources off of paying client work, to invest in a in a product takes a long time, and often it just doesn't get the attention it deserves. You know, paying clients come first, and eventually they kind of abandon it and just go back to what makes the money. So we were I kind of knew that that was a problem from everything that I read and had experienced before. So we actually took a different approach, which was um, I went to basically look for a dedicated engineer to build the product, and I looked for one who had the the skill set that that essentially I needed, which was um, I wanted something that would enable great design. And as a designer with that background, like we had to be able to move things around in layout and change typography, and we had to do more than just essentially like a WYSIWYG editor, which a lot of uh, the only existing solution at the time was essentially a a typical WYSIWYG. Um, So I found this JavaScript developer and we were lucky enough to have where I live in Canada, um, especially where in Canada I live, there's this thing called the Atlantic Canada Opportunities Agency, which is essentially it's a facility to get interest free loans, grants, uh, it's all government backed. So they were trying to uh, build up the tech sector where I live. And there was something where they would essentially fund uh, half of the salary of a, of a full-time engineer. So nice. we, we got approval on that, hired Jonathan, um, funded half of his salary, and the rest was covered through, through a, a grant. And so the, that was how we essentially got him in the agency. And I said, like, you're working on this project. I don't care who comes to you. You're not working on it. You're fired if you work on a client. Work. <laughs> like, you have to just work on this. So it was really me and Jonathan for the better part of a year, just going back and forth. I would sort of talk to customers or potential users, figure out where things were broken, where they were getting confused, design the screens, and then bring it to him and he would build them. And we worked really well together. Um, finally, when we started really getting it off the ground, would have been around 2013. And then a year okay. later in 2014, I sold. Uh, we sold the agency... Um, went full-time into Proposify, and that was still really with only about maybe 10 users or so, it wasn't significant traction.
1: Okay, so after selling the agency, you it was in 2014, and this is when basically you decided to go uh, all in on Proposify. Um, so at, at that time, you had like uh, enough money from selling the agency to sustain like for, how long would you say, like a year, two years? What was your kind of roadmap uh, back then? Well, it
0: wasn't quite that simple. So. We didn't actually make money from selling the agency. Um, oh, okay. Maybe if, if viewers could see me, they would see air quotes of selling. <laughs> <laughs> essentially, the, the agency was underwater. We were, you know, we, it wasn't profitable, and we were just trying to essentially offload it. So we did find somebody who would take it over, but we they were covering like the debt and the payroll and and you know, the client list. They weren't really paying us anything for it, um, but it was a chance for us to get a clean break and start start fresh. So we actually raised a small very small round of funding from the local um, government agency to get going and it was about 250,000 um so you might be able to say well we're not technically bootstrapped because we did raise early on but it was a pretty small round and the 250k didn't go far so it was enough to maybe cover me my co-founder and the engineer for for 10 months or something like that before we ran out okay. of money just to keep the lights on um, still, so I still like to think that we we were bootstrapped.
1: Yeah, I do feel. I mean, it's it's more of a kind of like a grant or like subsidiaries from government. So I I, I think we can still say it's uh, it's bootstrap. And um, after those ten months, what was like kind of the was it the deadline where you say okay, if we don't make enough money to sustain ourselves, it's over? Or what was kind of like the approach?
0: I mean, that was pretty much it. When we went out in. Uh, I'd say by the time the check cleared and we were we were completely free of the agency, it was about May of 2014. Okay, we had under a thousand dollars in MRR, so not enough to sustain ourselves by any means, and and it wasn't growing either. Like it was, we would get a, a new customer maybe to sign up and then lose lose another one the same month. So we were very flat. Um, but there was a it, it really came down to product market fit, and I think. You know anybody who's been a bootstrap founder knows that that journey to finding, you know are we building something ultimately people want or the market wants? Um, we didn't have product market fit. So we kind of knew that, okay, there's a few key product gaps that need to get closed in order for us to satisfy customers because like I was able to drive traffic to top a funnel. like i was I was pretty good at marketing because we ran the marketing and web design agency. So I knew how to blog and content, you know, create content and SEO and everything just to get people to the front door. They would say, oh, this looks great. I want it. Sign up to it. And then be like, oh, this kind of sucks. And then they, okay, (laughs) so, okay, how do we make it not suck? So we found out that number one, like the biggest barrier to entry was getting your proposal content in the system, right? Because we couldn't just, you couldn't just upload a PDF. Like you would say DocuSign, you had to actually be able to interact and, and edit these things. So. The way we solved that problem was let's just create like 10 amazing looking killer templates that you can customize. So as soon as you sign up, you could go, oh, I'm a web design company. There's a web design template. It looks awesome. I've got three choices. I'm going to pick this one. And now I can start, you know, putting my own pricing and my own content in there. That with um, two features that really I never thought people would want. In hindsight, now looking back, people would say, you're crazy. How did you not think that people would want these features? But they have to understand this. These weren't common. Uh, this wasn't the status quo at the time. These weren't common features. Was e-signatures so common now? Every product pretty, pretty much has its own built-in e-signature capability. Um, back when I was running the agency, we didn't use e-signatures, so I didn't think anybody would want it. Uh, we'd fax, you know, and and email the contracts back and forth. The other one was metrics. Like people said, oh, I want to know, like, did they spend time on the pricing section? Did they? You know, do they even look at the scope of services? And so when we had kind of those features with the ability to get your content in the system easily, it was pretty crazy because we went from like no growth at all to in September, we doubled our MRR and then we doubled it again the next month and we doubled the next month. And then we just started to take off like a rocket ship. Um, So it was a pretty exciting time.
1: Nice. So basically like from May until September was the time where you kind of like refined the roadmap, developed the right feature towards product market fit. And once you had this product market fit, you were growing like 50% month over month. And was was basically like uh, the growth just uh, exponential or did you hit? Because right now I think you're around like uh, 12 to 15 million in uh, annual recurring revenue or? um well, yeah. So at
0: the time we were, we went from ending the year at forty k in ARR, okay, four four thousand dollars MRR roughly, okay, to six hundred k ARR by the end of the next year.
1: Wow, nice. So that was about
0: thirteen hundred percent growth.
1: Okay, yeah, that's uh, <laughs> that's really really intense. And uh, how exactly, like, um, did you did you hit any plateau, like, from that day to right now, or uh, was it just exponential and you keep facing exponential growth?
0: Well, I wish I wish that was the case. But no, I mean, we we had a pretty incredible couple of years of growth, uh, because we grew 1300% that first year, uh, but 130. So we doubled, we more than doubled the next year. But so by the end of 2016, we were at like 1.5 million in ARR. Nice. uh, And then we had a huge, another double year the next year, which was we hit 3 million the following year. Um, but we definitely have had our, our growth challenges in that time. And that's where we got into like raising money, hiring a sales team and trying to kind of do all the things that SaaS companies typically do when they're looking to scale up.
1: Okay. So I'm, I'm quite, uh, interested in, uh, in understanding. So let's say like you were having hyper growth, then you started to see kind of like a, a decline in growth. And at that time you thought, okay, maybe we need more resources to scale this is when we're going to raise funds. How exactly did the fundraising go? Because when, what people mostly do is like, okay, when you're hyper-growing, it's quite easy to have like kind of the best terms whenever you want to fundraise. But in your case, you want to see like uh, VCs or investors with potentially like a growth which was declining a bit. Like, did it affect the fundraising or how exactly did the investors react? It?
0: We actually started to raise before our growth was declining.
1: Okay, that's smart
0: <laughs> yeah, the fundraising was was pretty good we There were some leading indicators though that there was that we needed to fix some things, and one of them was our churn was quite high um, okay. I don't remember exactly where we were at, but it was sort of above where you would want it to be, like above the it was it was let's just say three four percent monthly churn
1: okay, because you are targeting like uh s m b s correct
0: yeah, we were targeting okay. very small companies when we started. And then throughout that time of hypergrowth, we started to experiment with a slightly larger pricing model. I wouldn't call it enterprise; it was more, you know, a few thousand dollars a year, kind of um, slightly bigger team, but not not even mid-market. But to do that, we hired a couple sales reps. Really, no process, no manager. Just like, hey, let's throw a couple salespeople at at this because we got tons of traffic coming in all the time. We have tons of signups, thousands of signups every week. You know. Let's see if we can get some sales reps to like try to identify some good potential. Uh, maybe do some outbound prospecting to find bigger ones and see if what they can close. It wasn't like super successful, um, but we did start to note that whenever a sales rep would close an account that was like three grand a year, which we thought was really big at the time, we were like, "Wow, well, why would someone pay us that much money?" Of course, like now we've got accounts that are, you know, hundred fifty k or hundred k a year, but. At the time, 3000 seemed like a lot of money to us. Um, We did notice that the churn was always like zero, it was like in the negatives. We would keep those bigger accounts on, we would have somebody kind of service them and help them onboard and really kind of... But once they got embedded into a company's workflow, they'd never leave. And so that was the narrative that we would then took. Take when we went to raise money from VCs is that hey we've got this great organic business of self serve and trials that works the churn is quite high though but these are very small customers, um, and and you know it's really hard to do anything about churn when you can't control why they're canceling. So if people are canceling because like your product is crappy, well make a better product. But if they're canceling because like oh I only have sporadic use of this like I only use it a couple times a year. Then we're going after the wrong customer. We need to find a customer who has this problem all the time and needs this product, this problem solved perpetually. So that was sort of when we started to go. Maybe we should move up market. Our main competitor, Panadoc, was starting to do the same. Um, so that was kind of the narrative we took to to go raise
1: money. And um, basically, like, uh, what was what were the the terms of the fundraise? Like, how much money? And also, like, why did you? choose to switch from Bootstrap to Fundraise?
0: Yeah. I'd say like my co-founder and I, Kevin, had um, always... We'd known people who started um, startups and raised money. A lot of them raised too soon. And a lot of times they went out of business very soon afterwards. We'd heard all those horror stories where like investors come in and then if you don't hit certain targets, they try to like downround you or kick you off out of the company. And that always spooked us. We were pretty we didn't want that. Um, and in fact, we had an opportunity about a year prior, maybe a year and a half prior uh, to raise VC money that we turned down. So when we were just starting to take off and hit that you know that early growth, VCs gave us a term sheet for, I think it was 1.5 million or 2 million or something like that. On a pretty fair, like I think a five or a $10 million valuation. Um, And we said, no, because we said, you know what, what we're doing today is we're getting, we're profitable. And every time we get really profitable, we just take some of that profit and reinvest it in like a hire. So maybe we need a support person. Maybe we need another designer, but we don't, we wait. I always likened it to like bulking and cutting like that bodybuilders do is like, if you get a little too fat, okay, you need to cut down and then maybe you get, too skinny, so you need to bulk up, and you go through those rounds, which I think is really healthy for a business, especially a bootstrap business, of like get yourself profitable, but then start to like funnel some of the back and reinvest it back into the business. Um, but then when a big thing, a big um, change, I think it came down to Kevin and I looked at it and said, you know, our ultimate goal with this company was to to scale and exit. But what if we could sort of get a little bit of that exit today? and still you know scale it long term and at that time we were reading things about founders who had taken secondary and that was enough to i think for us balance the risk of like okay we could raise money and like lose the business and and you know suffer some negative consequences but on the plus side if we raise money we could take money off the table which would give us a nice injection of cash so we wouldn't necessarily need to be like desperate to sell it too quickly then it would also infuse capital into the business that we could use to grow even faster so that was kind of our rationale for raising
1: okay so just for uh, our listeners uh, secondary means basically that you are taking a uh, cash off the table meaning like the founders are getting a bit of money most of the um, vcs or traditional investors usually are not so fan of uh, doing secondary i think now it's changing a lot and some investors are actually leveraging it as a competitive advantage, which I think is, uh, is really great for founders uh, because it's, and I think you, you mentioned it very well, it kind of like de-risk the business, meaning that you as a founder, uh, you are both taking like uh, money out of the table, which means that you can keep building the business for the longer term without thinking too much about this risk of losing everything. So what were kind of like the, the terms, like how much did you raise and how much were secondary if, you, if you're if you willing to share?
0: Yeah, so when we raised from these investors, they were willing to give us um, $10 million across two different tranches. So the idea was they were going to split it into 5 million the first tranche and 5 million the second. And out of that, Kevin and I were going to take two. So one, one, one each, 3 okay. million back onto the balance sheet. Um, and then if we hit our targets within that year, which we were pretty aggressive, it was scaling to like 10 million in one year. Um, then they would come in for the second tranche and then we would get the rest of the money. So that was how the, the the deal was set up and it was actually a really great deal for us in terms of like the valuation was the multiples were strong. It was a fair offer. We thought, you know, million dollars at the time, like not even at the time, even today is like it's life changing amount of money, yep. you know, when you want to pay off your house and reinvest it and and all that kind of stuff so it was an amazing offer um, I think we just picked the wrong investors and that was uh, that was part of the problem because this was sort of like uh, I think they knew that we weren't gonna hit the target so that they essentially were able to like still give us the money the next year but at a at a much lower valuation that was kind of I think the game they were playing um, so unfortunately it did turn out the way that the nightmare that everybody Worries about with investors is oh they're going to downround you and take your company and all that stuff that actually did
1: uh, more or less happen. Oh fuck! Can you can you share like a bit the the details of how it
0: happened? I've got to be careful because they're they I doubt they're listening but they're pretty litigious people so uh, okay I got to be a little bit careful but you know. Basically, it was it was a very distracting situation where <clears throat> they still wanted to come in, but they wanted to essentially own a-
1: lower the valuation and okay
0: yeah, like significantly um and I think they had done it before, but I'm not you know entirely sure, but either way, Kevin and I just put our foot down and said no like if, if you're gonna down, try to down round us, we just won't take the second
1: offer or yeah much. And, um, and and just to <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I can imagine. And at the time, because what's um, a risk, you know, whenever you're like fundraising is that eventually like because you injected money in the company and you had like kind of your hiring plan, etc., you are burning more money that you are earning, meaning that, you know, like down the line, you know, that if you're not raising another round, eventually you would have to lay off people or like... Uh, was it something that happened to you back then or were you quite like, uh, had you reached like the, the profitability state again so you are in a, in a good position?
0: Yeah. I'll like I'll lay this out for the listeners, especially if they're not too familiar with venture deals and terms yeah. and this kind of stuff. Is that like, let's say your business is doing 5 million in ARR. Um, typically they would get valued at 5 to 10 or at least back then it was like 5 to 10X that. So it means like if you're a 5 million ARR or a SaaS company, you can probably command a, um you know, a thirty to a fifty million dollar valuation the The idea is that like investors are valuing it at that because they know that if you put reinvest that money into growth, then you can actually be worth ten times that amount in a very short time, so they're kind of willing to give you that healthy valuation. But if you don't hit that growth uh, target that they had set out, you know, like you said, you're burning more cash because you're reinvesting it into hiring people um you're not profitable because you're you're essentially burning through that investment you're you're essentially hiring ahead of the revenue um, so it's very impo- you know important to understand that like and i think this was one of the learnings f- that we had taken away was when you set aggressive growth targets you think it'll sort of push and inspire everybody to level up and and hit those targets but it can also have pretty significant consequences like you said you know like we 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 laid off most of our sales team Okay. about a year after that, because we we'd hired, but we didn't have a really great process. we There was a lot. We didn't figure out pricing, positioning. We didn't have the right product to move up into the enterprise. So it meant like we hired lots of great salespeople who just couldn't be effective and they couldn't hit targets. Um, and unfortunately, we had to let them go.
1: so when when you're at that stage where um, okay, like they, they want to kind of like down round, take more share in the company and keep injecting money. And uh, you and your co-founders, you say no. Um, What comes next? Because they are obviously like very frustrated. You on your hand, it's like kind of a shitty situation to be in when you're a founder. If you have to like fire people you've hired, you've put a lot of energy into the business, into the processes. Like what's, what's comes next basically? Like it's uh,
0: hell. I mean, (laughs) it was one of the most challenging uh, situations that we've, We've experienced in the business. Um, You know, we we had we had a really good outside of those investors. We had a good, really good board member who was in our corner. Um, We had good lawyers and and good finance people who were able to really give us the ammunition we needed to to push back. Um, But I mean, it really got into those classic, you know, almost something you would see on TV where like it comes down to a vote and you know, three against two at the board level. And then they're pushing back as shareholders and all that kind of stuff. So it was a very, very difficult situation, but we held our ground. We were not taking more money from these people. And um, ultimately we, we, we were almost forced to raise again, because we had to find new investors who saw the potential in what we were doing and were willing to not only come in and give us capital, but also, had enough cash to buy out the old investors and take them. And that's what those, the the investors that, the first round of investors that we had the issues with ultimately just, if we weren't going to take their money, then just find somebody to buy us out because we don't want to, you know, we're going to take our ball and go home kind of thing.
1: And in the second round you did, how how much was uh, the second round and did you take another cash out out of this round or was it just... uh okay, like the second round is for buying existing um, investors out and potentially injecting a bit more money in the company?
0: Yeah, the um, so I can say who our current investors are. Uh, we've been public with that, which is CBGF, the Canadian Business Growth Fund. Um, okay. And I don't think they want me to give out all the exact details and terms of sure. the of the arrangement. But essentially, they we were able to raise enough to put Money, you know, millions of dollars on the balance sheet, buy off the old investment, the old investors, and they did it during COVID. Like they did, we had a a deal all lined up, ready to go, and then COVID happened, and every investor was putting pause on on their deals. We were extremely lucky that they, even after two weeks of essentially the world shutting down, they came back to us and said, you know what, we're not going to go ahead with every deal that's in our pipeline, but we believe in you, and we're going to and they it really saved our ass because the old investors were, were being quite um, aggressive.
1: Dicks. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, actually, like, uh, I think for every people listening, if you're thinking about like raising money, something, and I think you would agree on, on that, Kyle, is uh, do due diligence with the funds who are investing in your business. So try to reach out to people who they have invested in Uh, but went out of business, Uh, people would have invested it, but where the company was flat just after the investment, just so you understand how uh, the investor would react when shit hit the fan. And that, uh, because, you know, like uh, I think in your case, it's, uh, as you said, like you, you basically told me that they might have done this to another company. Usually these things like uh, travel fast and it's, it's quite easy to get the, the world. And, it will not prevent every issue but it might uh, for some like uh, just prevent for getting someone you don't want to do uh, business with so I'm, I'm glad you actually found like uh, uh, new partners who you, you are like actually like getting on well and uh, since then everything is cool with them or were there any other ups and downs uh, with the new partner
0: well i mean there's all yeah there's always going to be ups and downs in a Business, especially when you're trying to grow aggressively. But but as far as the partnership with CBGF and having them as board members, they've been, been nothing but uh, kind and supportive.
1: Nice, and uh, looking back at uh, this kind of like story of being bootstrap, uh, owning your business, being able to do everything you want, and then moving towards like first round of fundraising, going kind of like through hell, as you mentioned, and then having like a new partner, is there anything that uh, you would do differently? That's a really interesting question. And,
0: and it's one I honestly kind of grapple with, but it's a fun topic because I think it depends like how how meaningful, so there's a couple frameworks, I guess, to think through this, which is number one, like how important is getting cash today? Um, because if you're like me, like I did not come from from wealth. I was a struggling entrepreneur for for years. You know, I went through periods when I was running the agency where I could barely, you know, sometimes I couldn't afford to pay myself or pay rent, and I had a family, kids, and all that stuff. So, um, I was used to being poor. So the prospect of getting like a million bucks in your account was a little bit too much to turn down, when that's kind of the world you're you're coming from. Um, but at the same time, I think it, it was a bit short sighted because it did end up putting us in a uh, a deal with the, the wrong investors, you know. So we were kind of lured, I think, by the cash, but ultimately it wasn't a good decision. Um, but I think if you can stick it out as a bootstrapped company, if you're profitable and you're growing and you can get the business to like, you know, pass the two, three, four million dollar mark. Um, and that your margins are healthy, I mean, you can have a very profitable, like I know SaaS founders with 10, 15 million ARR businesses bootstrapped that pull like 4 million bucks out a year personally. Um, and I think most people would agree like that is probably a better way to run a business than taking outside money in and then basically having a lot more pressure to, to burn, to, to hire and to hit more aggressive targets. The flip side of that is if you look at people like David Cancel behind Drift and these sort of like serial entrepreneurs and, and all of their businesses are venture backed, they also, they're also trying to build billion dollar public companies. And if you want to do that, there's not really too many options at your disposal other than raise venture capital. So it really depends what you want out of life. A lot of times if, if uh, an entrepreneur has had a couple of wins under their belt. And they're good and they've got enough cash personally. A lot of times for them, it's about the excitement of like climbing Mount Everest. So for them, they're like, I'm going to spend somebody else's money to build like a billion dollar company that's going to outlive me. That's exciting for them.
1: Yeah, I think it's really based on uh, your purpose. Because I, I do feel like in the, in the media in general, we, we always focus you know, on this huge fundraising and we make it kind of like the norm. But as you said, like, I love bootstrap companies with, uh, you know, where the funders are uh, taking dividends each year, making like a lot of, them. because I do feel that a lot of people think that if they want to make millions, they need to fundraise. Like it's, it's the only pass, whereas actually you have like so many other options. And as you mentioned, being profitable, uh, being able to have like a healthy business with large margin, which to be honest, is fairly common in SaaS businesses is also uh, definitely like a, a great route. You can also sell it if it's bootstrapped if you want to cash
0: out and, you know, make your 100 million dollars uh, dollars from the acquisition. You can still do that if you're bootstrapped and you get to keep it all. So, there's a lot of really good things out. The other factor, and I know you probably want to move on, but this is the other thing to consider too is that a business does not have an indefinite uh amount of time to to win its market. So, Competition is a real thing when you're bootstrapped. It's a real thing all the time, but it's especially real. Like if you're the first to market and you're like number one in your category, as soon as another business comes in and raises, it becomes increasingly hard to stand out compared to that competitor. And I'll, the, I've got my own, you know, example who I don't want to mention my competitor again, but um, Basecamp is a good example. They're like almost the the godfather of bootstrapped yeah. SaaS businesses. But if you look at bootst- if you look at um, project management software nowadays, Basecamp usually doesn't come to mind for most people. It's Asana, and Asana yep. is the well-funded, venture-backed competitor that's like crushing Basecamp. Now they all say they don't care, they're profitable, they don't care about growth. That's fine, but competition is a real factor when you're up against venture-backed startups.
1: Yeah, I agree. I, I think in the end, it's all about like uh, market attention, market shares. Um, but yeah, I I think it's uh I think it's true that most businesses often we we think that they have like infinite lifetime, but they don't really. And something you mentioned uh, about like uh get, selling your business, et cetera, especially in the SaaS space, I've seen more and more like uh interesting companies like uh, Micro Acquire, for example basically like facilitates you know like all this uh, selling process you have also like tons of uh, brokers that can help you out like with selling your business that's what we did actually with um, one of our SaaS projects that we built Uh, we wanted to focus on lemnis rather than uh, focusing on other things so we sell sold it uh, about like a year and a half ago and again as you said like it's also an easy way like to build a project sell it maybe focus on something else or run uh, other businesses um, closing on that part, I'm, uh, I'm quite intrigued, you know, like, cause we, we mentioned about this transition, uh, going from bootstrap to fundraising, having the ups and downs. Were there any other, like, uh, cause you, I think it's quite interesting cause you're like being fully transparent. So I want to dig in in that also. Um, you're targeting SMBs. You have like this kind of like churn issue, et cetera. Like when you hit a plateau. What's kind of like your mindset behind it? Like uh, how exactly do you address it? How do you address it with the team? What's kind of like the step-by-step process?
0: Well, there's my opinion now and there's my, what I did at the time. And I think my thinking has evolved on this, on this. And I think even if I give this advice, most people listening will, will still ignore it and then... <laughs> suffer the consequences and then be like oh shit i should have listened to kyle
1: listen to kyle guys <laughs>
0: <laughs> this is like this is the painful truth and it takes a long time to get this it, as the when you've bootstrapped a company you have to be a certain kind of person who's like really good at a lot of stuff really smart you know problem solver you know can do marketing can do some product can do some sales But then as you start to scale up, you need to find people, not just like people to take tasks off your plate, but people who are actually better than you. Most, I would say in this, I don't have data behind this, but I'm going to say most entrepreneurs do a really bad job at this. They instead try to find like, well, I'm going to find somebody who can do this almost as good as me just to like take all the the monkey work off my back. Instead of like, I'm going to find somebody who's like built a $10 million business and marketing or product, and I'm going to hire them, pay them whatever they want to take this to the next level. So the faster you, or the, the, the more you grow, the bigger you get. You as the CEO, your job completely changes. You're no longer just like the scrappy person who just needs to figure it out. You've really got only a couple of jobs. You need to set the vision and the direction of where the company needs to go. You need to hire the best executive team, money can buy and you need to not run out of money so you need to manage your, your burn rate and your and your growth and really if you can do those three jobs well you'll have a, a scaling profitable business but what most people won't do is they won't let the, the initial people who helped them get to where they are they won't let them go they're like you know the person that was in the trenches with me helping to get to product market fit I want this person to be still on my team you know past 5 million, 10 million ARR when really you should probably let that person go and go go hire the best VP of product, VP of marketing, VP of sales, whatever happens to be to take you to the next level. And most won't do that. Or if they do it, they do it way too late and they take too long.
1: And what has been like um, kind of your strategy to find these people and convince them to join you? And how do you find them also? Finding people is not that hard. It's it's being
0: willing to tell the person who helped you build this great business. You were a good fit a year ago. You're not a good fit anymore. You should go find another company. That's the hard part. It's the part most founders aren't willing to do until it, until it actually hurts them and they have to, right? And because finding somebody's yep. like, okay, you go through job ads, you recruit, you headhunt, you find somebody awesome, you interview them, you pay them enough you know, stock options or or enough salary or enough of a bonus structure to incentivize them, that part's not that hard. <laughs> it's, it's telling the person that you're replacing them with, like,
1: you've got to go. And what have you done to make this process, like, uh, smooth when you know that it's actually going to be, like, uh, really painful? Because obviously, like, uh, you know, your first employees are the one, they're not co-founders, but you have more or less the same feeling th- if they were with you like from the early days. So how exactly did you handle it?
0: Well, I didn't. I don't think I did it well, uh, which is why I'm sharing the lesson. <laughs> <I think laughs> the way you should handle it um, is I think you should give people a shot, but you should be very clear about like if you're leading and I'm just using random examples. Let's say you're leading engineering today. Here's what the job looks like a year from now which means it's actually a different job. Your title might still be head of engineering or VP engineering or CTO, but what got us to here is not going to what, be what takes us to the next level. That's a whole different job and you need to re-qualify for it. I never said that to my people, right? But it, but the way it is now is like, yeah, if the person who gets you to 1 million probably can't take you to 10 and the person who gets you to 10 can't take you to 100. So it means that you have to like keep the standard high, make them accountable for hitting the number or hitting their commitments or their goals. And then if they show that they just can't level up fast enough and knowing that 80, 90% of people won't, it's being able to say, you know what? I want to celebrate what you've accomplished. You've been amazing. You just can't get us to the next level. And I think you should go find a new opportunity to do what you just did for us, but do it again for somebody else. That's how I handle it now.
1: And um, do you feel like the best option is actually to have them find another opportunity or potentially like have them stay in the team, but at a different position? Like, how do you like perceive this? And is this something you've tested?
0: I have tested it. I have had, I've had those conversations with people who were leading a department and said, you're not going to be the one to lead it moving forward. I need to find somebody who can. But you can stay in the company and we'll find some other job for you because you're still really good at whatever it happens to be coding, marketing. Um, I don't think it's ultimately that successful in the long run. Because even though a lot of times people are like, oh, I love the company. I'll stay on. It's fine. I don't have an ego. I don't need to run the department. I just like to work here. Um, What you often kind of find is that there's usually some level of friction between them and their new boss because they're like, hey, I built this thing. You know, and now you're the the corporate VP coming in to tell me how to do my job. Um, you also tend to almost create too many roles in the company. This is a really big problem that happens is that as you grow, especially if you've got some some cash to to use you know from investors, it 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 can be very easy to get away from that sort of lean startup idea where you're just like, oh, let's only hire a players. Let's only hire like people we absolutely need today people get very generous with who they're hiring. They're like, oh, well, you know, this my plate's pretty full, so I think I'm gonna hire a junior person to like help take some things off my, my plate. And then you end up with this kind of bloated organization where there's a lot of people, but nobody really knows what they're accountable for. Um, and this can happen anyway, I don't mean to ramble, but this can happen when you sort of take the people who are leading and say, well, you're not good to lead the whole thing, but we'll put you somewhere where you can be effective you often find that they're not able to operate at the level that they could before when you were an early stage company. So it usually is better that they just move on and find a similar opportunity and help a company like you, again, just do what you did again somewhere else. A lot There's a lot of people who are awesome at that.
1: And um, I'm curious because I think this is like a very like passionate subject for us because, you know, like we grew from uh, zero to 10 million ARR being like fully bootstrapped um, and we're at a stage, you know, like having all these questions, like how do we go from 10 to 100, knowing that all the heads of that we have right now are people, you know, who, who started the company. I I just like uh, want to mention that I'm not gonna fire them after this podcast, but um, I'm just curious. Like, uh, yeah, yeah, m- we. But it's it's funny because like the um, the question, you know, like you're asking people and how the the role is evolving is something that I'm doing like constantly. Where every like quarter or year, I'm telling people where they're at right now and where they should be or where they I need them to be in the next quarter, and we re- we reevaluate basically like. Uh, on a quarterly or semi-yearly basis, I would say like the, the role of everyone, but you were mentioning that the role of the CEO evolved over time. And as you said, you know, like it was your role as you're growing past, uh, let's say five or 10 million ARR, it's really about defining like the, the vision, the mission, and also making sure that you don't run out of money. But how exactly, like two questions for you. The first one is how many people do you manage uh, directly? Uh, or how many people do report to you directly? And on top of it, like how exactly do you set up each objective for each department? Is it you handling this for each department or do you just set the vision, set the yearly objectives, and then people will report to you, come to see you and tell you, okay, here's the plan. Here's how we're going to reach that. Are you cool with it? Let's go.
0: So... There's the, the first question is quite easy because if you're a CEO, generally there's there's about six functions of a SaaS business that somebody needs to own and somebody needs to report to the CEO on. And that's, tech, that's product, engineering, sales, customer success, marketing, and operations. And we'll say operations is a catch-all for finance, legal, um, as well as more like the actual operations of the business. What I and so I I do a little bit of part time coaching for SaaS founders and I, I thought, find that at the sort of two million ARR mark a lot of them have had success getting to where they're at with the CEO kind of wearing most of those hats. If you say who actually leads product, you'll they'll say, I guess I I do. Like there's somebody who, who like does the design work and maybe codes, but like I'm telling them what to build, so I guess I run product. It's it's like one of the starting points is like you need to build an executive leadership team and that executive team needs to report to the CEO. So when you go, why does our product suck? You need to go to the head of product and engineering and say, our product shit, make it better. Uh, Once you have that in place, then you need really good systems for setting goals and measuring them. And there's, there's, you know, there's all kinds of different frameworks you can use. When we started, we use the EOS model, which is the entrepreneurial operating system. There's a book called Traction by Gino Wickman that spells out that whole system. And it involves, you know, an annual planning, quarterly offsites with the leadership team, weekly scorecard. Those are just good practices to put into your business, having some kind of weekly measurable, having some, um, some goals that you kind of set out with the team. But as you start to scale, that stuff becomes really difficult because if you have a department that's made up of multiple teams, let's say 10 teams within a department, sometimes cross-functional. So you might have a team that everybody in that team reports to somewhere, to someone else, QA reports to the QA lead, engineering reports to the engineering lead, and so forth. It becomes really difficult for the executive team to even set goals for all those teams because honestly, they shouldn't know what the thing is that they need to do. So what, what we started to implement which is how I think a lot of companies like Google get around this is OKRs. And the OKR system is is really good because it lets you as an executive team say at a high level, these are the objectives we want to achieve next year. Here's how we're going to measure whether or not they're, they're true. And then once you set those OKRs, you communicate them to your teams and then the teams go and they set their quarterly OKRs and say like, okay, so the company wants to you know, scale revenue or reduce our churn or whatever the objective happens to be. Here's how our team is going to action that and move that ahead. And so they create their own set of more specific objectives and key results that will make the company one um, move further ahead. So OKRs are a really good system for that.
1: Could you give like an example, for example, of uh, what you said to, let's say, your head of marketing as a a CEO?
0: Sure. So, I, I mean, I will say, OKRs are best used by product and engineering teams. That's my personal yeah. belief, I'm sure somebody would argue with me on that, but I think the reason they're great for product and engineering is it's really hard to give your engineering leader a revenue target. You know, if you say generate 2 million in new business, Pretty tough. Like an engineering leader is probably not going to know how to do that because they also have to make sure that like the system is sca- scalable and stable and secure and and there's a whole bunch of engineering stuff that that the leader needs to do. But if you can say like we want to have a world class product, we need to we we need to be the best in this market, or we want to, um, you know increase the collaboration that our system is capable, whatever it happens to be, you can have something that's a little bit more qualitative to give to your product and engineering leaders. And so OKRs are really good for that because they say, this is the outcome we want to achieve. Here's how we're going to measure it. Revenue targets are a little different. And I found in practice that every department can use OKRs, but for sales teams, for instance, it's generally better you just give them a revenue target. And marketing, same thing. Now, marketing will sometimes use um, OKRs to basically prioritize key metrics. Like they might say, you know what, we're getting tons of leads at the top of the funnel, but our conversion is shit. So we're going to create an OKR that says, like, increase our conversion, and we're going to measure that, you know, the, the following ways. Um, so that's one example of how the marketing team could implement OKRs. But at the end of the day, what you want from your marketing team is revenue.
1: Yeah. So as a CEO, basically like your objective for the marketing team would be something like, uh, yeah, we need to hit, let's say, uh, 5 million more in ARR by the end of the first quarter or something like that. And then they would set up their key results, for example, like increasing, uh, website visitors by 200% or something like that. Is that correct? Or
0: Yeah. Like I think KPIs or key performance indicators are different than OKRs. OKRs are generally meant to, um, be used in more of a shorter time scale. So you might say okay. a quarterly or even an annual OKR. KPIs are kind of like your business as usual metrics.
1: Okay. So it's kind
0: of like, I liken it to, um, you know, if you're driving to, uh, if you need to make a road trip, you need to make sure you've got enough gas in the tank to make it all the way to the trip. Gas is probably a KPI. It's like something you need to know and you ne- it needs to inform you along the way but your, your whole purpose of being is not to have gas in your tank. It's actually get, to get to, the, to point B. That's how I like to think of it.
1: Yeah, it's a, it's a, good, uh, a good image. <laughs> so, so right now, if I understand correctly, you have like uh, six people reporting like uh, under you. And is it something that, um, um, that basically like you, where you do like weekly one-on-one with them or how exactly do you structure your, uh, your weekly like uh, reporting and day-to-day?
0: Yeah, so with with the exec team, it's a weekly sync we meet every Monday morning to review kind of those KPIs, the OKRs, um, bring up any problems happening that we need to solve as a team.
1: And so you do that with all your exec and you, is that correct? That's
0: right. Yeah. Okay. do that with the exec team weekly. Uh, Quarterly, there's um, bigger planning sessions. We usually do two days of of quarterly planning and then like an annual one as well. I do weekly. uh, I actually do uh, every two weeks, hour long one on ones. But I'm moving it actually to half an hour weekly, just to get more touch points with the with the leaders. One on one should be non negotiable in every company, I believe. Um, I believe like if you're a boss and you're not having regular one on ones with your direct reports, then you're you're failing them as a leader.
1: (laughs) Yeah agree agree on that um i want to be like uh, cautious of your time like tons of really really interesting topic that uh, that we went through um i want to finish with uh, the the f- last three questions um who's your favorite uh, bootstrap founder and uh, also why i know you mentioned Basecamp, so maybe you're gonna go with jason i'm, but not, gonna,
0: I'm <laughs> not gonna pick them they get picked too much yeah <laughs> um well, there's a few I know personally who I who I consider friends. One of them is um, is only Oh, I
1: from Agorapels? or yeah, nice. Yeah, I had lunch with him actually like uh, last week because we we're both in Paris. Really cool oh. guy. <laughs> I didn't even pick up on that that French connection. Um,
0: <laughs> yeah, well, so we're actually in the same coaching group. We're uh, we're a ah, nice Martel's coaching group. So that's how we met. And I love Emmerich and I love the way he thinks. He actually. Taught me about OKRs. He like sent me his own internal video that he made. So I love Emmerich. I'm gonna I'm gonna pick him.
1: Nice. It's a it's a good choice. I second that, and we will have him on the on the show also a, a bit later. It's planned. <laughs> second question: um, What's your favorite like podcast or uh, book?
0: Uh, I don't listen to podcasts a whole lot, um, and I read it, but I do read a ton of books, and it, so it's really hard to pick one. Um. One that I read, the one I'm reading currently is called, is actually Netflix's No Rules Rules, which is a really good one. Um, One that I, one that's kind of like a classic one that everybody references that I only read last year was Crossing the Chasm. And it's, Mm. it's a great book, especially if you've had that kind of early bootstrap success, but now you're looking at like, how do I take it to the next level? Crossing the Chasm is a great book.
1: Nice. Actually, it's funny you mentioned it because I had like uh, someone on LinkedIn mentioning it like uh, to me today about like this is really a book you should read, and uh, I, I guess uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna have to go and buy it uh, <laughs> on no, no, Amazon. The problem with
0: books is most people don't read them until they're already experiencing the problem. Like yeah. there's kinds of books people told me to read, and I was like, yeah, I don't care. But once again, I'm like feeling the pain, then I go and read the book.
1: Yeah, I think I think that's the best way to read a book. To be honest, it's it's the same as. Uh, when I was younger, I used to be reading books, you know, like uh, the traditional way you start from page one and you end up until the end. But right now, I usually like skim through the book once and then I just pick the chapters when I know where I'm facing the problem, because I guess this is a time where you can actually plan and apply all the learnings directly to your business. And that's to me like the best way to learn something and uh, like make sure you, you own the topic in a, in a better way.
0: A really good example of that one is The Hard Thing About Hard Things by Ben. Oh, yeah.
1: It's one of those ones, like, I
0: don't know if you can read it cover to cover, but if you're like, there's a chapter like How to Fire an Executive or How to Demote a Loyal Friend. It's like when you get in that situation,